This is History West Midlands. Wherever they lived, the lives of British women changed dramatically in the hundred years from 1850 to 1950. Historian and author Cathy Hunt has traced these changes in one provincial city, Coventry, at the heart of England. Through the eyes and words of Coventry's women, she paints a picture of struggle, hardship and opportunity. The century between 1850 and 1950 saw enormous changes in Britain and women were always at the very heart of change. They were, and are, strong, resilient and quick to adapt. Whether pioneers, workers, wives and mothers, and pretty often all of these at the same time, women's experiences in these fast-changing years deserve to be heard, but are often ignored. By 1950, women had greater freedoms than had ever been dreamt of by their grandmothers. They had the vote... They'd seen the removal of some professional barriers and there was greater acceptance of women's roles in public life and, crucially, right at the end of the period had come free healthcare for all. And yet, despite these changes, progress was not universal. Then and now, many women struggled to protect their children from the harshness of poverty or to be taken seriously in a male-dominated world. One of the most important ways of listening to women's voices is to focus on a single location, and Coventry allows us to examine women's lives at close quarters, drawing on their experiences of growing up in this industrial city. We can follow them at school, in employment, setting up home, getting wed and having babies. In other words, the very stuff of life. Coventry saw boom and bust, But it survived as its industries evolved from silk ribbon weaving and watchmaking in the 19th century to the motor industry and engineering corporations of the 20th century. I'm one of many incomers whom Coventry has welcomed, joining others from all over the world who are proud to have made the city their home. I see myself in many of their experiences. For years, my day was punctuated by planning family meals, shopping, cooking, washing and cleaning. Sure, I have a washing machine and a vacuum cleaner, but the thinking and the organising are, I reckon, largely unaltered. My children were delivered safely in hospital, my choice, and I had the chance to spend time at home with them, their chances of surviving childhood enormously higher than they were for past generations. So please join me as we explore some aspects of life from 1850 to 1950 starting with education, from which opportunities sprang for the fortunate. In the 19th century, the education a Coventry girl received depended very much on her class and income. Beyond the three R's, girls were trained for the life that they were expected to lead, which had marriage and motherhood at the centre. By the 1880s, domestic economy was a compulsory subject for girls in local board schools, with emphasis not just on cookery, but on household tasks like laundry and sewing. In some schools, the training prepared girls for a life of service. The preserved exercise books of a charity school girl, Rosa Atkins, show that in 1871 she was learning how to sort dirty washing. 
I must first collect both the sheets, towels, pillowcases and soil clothes from the bags in the bedrooms. All the gowns, petticoats, chemises, handkerchiefs, caps, shirts, collars, cravats, waistcoats, light trousers and stockings, all the tablecloths, dinner napkins, coarse cloths and towels from the kitchen and throw them on the floor of the room used for that purpose. The world of middle-class girls in Coventry was very different. Private schools advertised the attention that they would pay to the ornamental departments of a young lady's education, such as singing, playing the piano and in the words of George Eliot in Middlemarch, which was based on Coventry, even to extras such as the getting in and out of a carriage. The emphasis wasn't on academic success, but on turning out young ladies who knew just enough to make them intelligent companions to their husbands and, before that, to make them charming enough to marry and to marry well. In working-class areas, where girls' education could be undervalued, Head teachers battled with families over erratic pupil attendance, even after this became compulsory. It was far more common for girls to be kept from school than boys, helping with household chores and, above all, childcare in times of sickness, childbirth or parental absence. Girls learned early that they, more than their brothers, were expected to help with the family. In the 1890s, the South Street School logbook noted that a list of the most hardened absentees had been drawn up so that parents could be sent warnings. It was alleged that mothers who were constantly sending for their daughters were blaming their absences on the need to go out to work in hard times, relying on the older daughters to care for the younger children. In 1897, an unpleasant interview with an insolent woman who kept her child at home about twice every week ended with the mother announcing that she should keep her when she liked before storming from the room. Coventry got its first secondary school for girls in 1908. Its pupils had the chance to stay beyond the school leaving age to prepare for university and entry into the professions. One Coventry teacher, Selina Dix, celebrated these new opportunities while carefully emphasising a woman's traditional role to ensure society was not unduly alarmed. Whilst all that is inherited in woman makes the home life peculiarly dependent on her, education has enlarged her view and the narrowness of the path trodden by the women of the early 19th century has broadened into a road which women and men may now tread together as equals in their work for the good of the world. Class determined what followed school for most women. In Victorian Britain, the prevailing view was that women's place was in the home. A non-working wife was proof of a man's prestigious social standing, respectability and economic prowess. But the reality, of course, was that some women longed to work and many working-class women had no choice but to work whether they were married or not. Nevertheless, for much of the period, it was assumed that women's working lives would be temporary, ended by marriage and motherhood. So employers in Coventry, like elsewhere in Britain, used this to justify paying them less than the men and expecting them to accept their terms and conditions without complaint. If women worked in areas deemed to be typically female, like domestic service, society was largely untroubled. But across Britain, women also worked in industry. 
In the early days of Coventry silk weaving, homeworking was common. But as factories became more widespread, women's labour was needed there. Middle-class observers, such as Coventry writer and philosopher Charles Bray, worried about the implications of women's work outside the home. In 1857, he wrote, If she feed us, clothe us, bring us into the world, educate us, nurse us, and make a home what it ought to be, this is her work. And if it is done properly, surely she will have enough to do. It is at least one half of the business of life. More concerns were expressed when women began to work in Coventry's cycle factories, one male worker objecting in the early 20th century to the coarse and uncongenial surroundings that are constantly tending to deprive female workers of the grace and modesty which are both a woman's strength and glory. Too many workshops, he wrote, had terrible and degrading atmospheres where young girls were exposed to the coarsening effects of language as would not be tolerated for a moment in an honest working man's home. Both the church and male trade unionists believed that women's dignity was best preserved by keeping her out of the cycle factories where her employment was a standing disgrace, which prevented women from taking up their natural and ideal positions as the helpmates and partners of men in every sense of the word and becoming what God intended them to be the noblest influence for good upon earth. Moral concerns there may have been, but behind these were men's fears that women were undercutting them and bringing down wages. In the First World War, attitudes were briefly transformed. The nation was dependent on women workers to keep soldiers at the front supplied with weapons. In Coventry and elsewhere, they were needed to keep public services running. Thousands of women from across the country came to Coventry to work in its munitions factories. A report in 1916 described an agglomeration of girls and women, English, Scotch, Irish and Welsh, having been thrown together for war work, over 5,000 of them in that year alone. Many of them were happy to be released from the drudgery and isolation of domestic service and prepared to work long hours. But life could be dangerous. Some appalling accidents happened on the factory floor. Florence Jackson recalled that at the Coventry Ordnance Fuse Factory, women used to fill the shell bodies with powder and often one blew up. Occasionally you'd get a spark off and it'll go. My stepmother worked there. One of her friends, they said, had her face blown to bits. In 1917, Ada Curtis, a young woman lodging in the city, was killed instantly in a local factory. And in 1918, 24-year-old Florence Johnson died when detonators exploded as they fell from the tray she was carrying. At the end of the war, several Coventry women were awarded OBEs for courage, high example and presence of mind shown during munitions factory fires and explosions. After the war, the emphasis on women's traditional place in the home returned and many who did stay at home must have then resented the criticism early in the Second World War that they were not doing their bit for the war effort. In 1941, the Midland Daily Telegraph accused many of wanting to go on living comfortably, finding excuses to stay home. Girls who may have worked on capstans all their lives 
suddenly discover that their cooking is perfect, that their husbands cannot eat any meal they have not cooked, that the excellent canteen meals provided in many places by trained women are unpalatable. They must be at home for this cooking. If there was any early reluctance to go into the factories this time, much of it was centred on anxieties about how to manage the family outside working hours. In response, Coventry organised a women war workers exhibition with posters and a parade, complete with a slogan urging not to queue with the shirkers, but to join the workers. One advertisement featured Coventry women factory workers appealing for help and trusting other women not to let them down because... We women of Coventry have got a lot to say to Hitler. And the strongest way we can say it is to produce the sort of material in our local factories that hits back good and hard. Away from the workplace, in wartime and in peace, women, as always, were the linchpin of the family. They were relied upon by everyone to budget, shop wisely, cook well and keep the house in order. The home might well have been a woman's domain, but there were plenty of people telling her what to do in it and how to keep her husband happy so that she didn't lose him to the pub. In January 1939, the Midland Daily Telegraph encouraged women to regard shopping not as a task, but as an adventure. It advised that with time and attention devoted to it, it was possible to become a good shopper rather than one who potters and then makes a bad bargain or who shops recklessly in the sales. Learn to keep your man happy, women were told. A Coventry Works magazine warned that a man might be caught by the glance of a bright eye, by a pair of cherry cheeks, by a handsome figure. But once the knot is tied, he finds out that his love cannot mend a shirt or cook a pudding. Then woe to the unhappy man, and also to the unhappy woman, because then all becomes hateful, and the public house separates those whom the law and the church have joined together. Improvements in health were impressive. Between 1850 and 1950, infant mortality rates were reduced, childbirth became safer, and families got smaller. But the anxieties of caring for the family rested heavily with women. Previously, illness in the family was a disaster. When, in the early 20th century, little Grace Charlton became ill with a high temperature and sore throat, her mother's worry was exacerbated by the knowledge that her medical insurance payment of four pence a week was in arrears, and a doctor, if needed, might refuse to come. Her Sunday best shoes went straight to the pawn shop, raising eight pence to take to the dispensary. It still wasn't enough to clear the debt, but it did ensure that the doctor attended Grace, even if he looked first at the family's dispensary payment book before examining the patient. And when diphtheria was diagnosed, there was another dash to the pawn shop, this time with bedding, to raise the five shillings needed for medicine, not included in the dispensary's cover. This was a significant sum, given that the family's weekly rent was three and a half shillings. Coventry's poor and overcrowded housing made it difficult for many people to protect their children from infectious diseases. Diarrhoea was an extremely dangerous condition. In 1900, for example, 
It was responsible for more infant deaths than any other illness in the city. And of the 75 lives that it took that year in Coventry, the majority were babies under the age of one. Summer saw the highest number of cases of diarrhoea, and bottle-fed babies were particularly vulnerable because keeping milk and foods cool and free from bacteria was extremely difficult. Medical officers of health knew that to reduce infant death rates, vast improvements in living conditions were critical. Meanwhile, before the start of slum clearance schemes, they issued feeding advice to mothers. In 1904, Dr Snell suggested that if the breast milk is sufficient in quantity, then mother should feed baby every two hours during the day and every four hours at night for the first three months, with the intervals between feeds lengthening until at six months other foods could be introduced. The salient point was, of course, if breast milk is sufficient, and successful breastfeeding was impossible to guarantee. In the second half of the 19th century, middle-class mothers became less likely to employ wet nurses, and where possible, they fed their own infants. Many were well supported by medical attendants, a nanny, a maid and a cook, with rest and nutritious food assured. In such circumstances, breastfeeding was given the best chance. But for women living in poor and overcrowded housing, there was less chance of success. Mothers were only too aware of the benefits of breastfeeding. It was safest for baby, as well as being cheaper. Many hoped that it might prevent another pregnancy occurring too soon, as prolonged feeding was widely regarded as contraceptive. Yet there were so many obstacles malnourishment in pregnancy and afterwards, caused by putting husband and children first, continuing paid work and housework right up to delivery and then resuming before proper strength was regained, low birth weight babies who struggled to feed, hungry babies who were never satisfied. Throughout Coventry's century of change, women of all classes tried to find time to escape the pressures of daily life. Time off and fun times were essential to health and happiness, and women grabbed opportunities to relax whenever they could. It could be hard to negotiate. Whilst a man might consider it part of his working day to stop off at the pub on a Saturday afternoon for a pint and a smoke, wives were almost always on duty, on the double shift of paid work and domestic chores. Sometimes grabbing a chance for a neighbourly chat while hanging out the washing, was as good as it got. For those women who could afford it, the bicycle at the end of the 19th century offered exhilaration and an escape from the sedate, ladylike pursuits expected of them. For a young, single, working woman, having a little money of your own also brought a little freedom from the home. The music hall, dancing and the cinema were all affordable if careful budgeting was applied. Mrs Dingley was born in Coventry in 1900 and her memories of free time include leaving work at Fredley's Jewel Works early on Saturday afternoons and heading into town to Woolworths. Here, there was a piano on a platform. The girls would select some sheet music and ask the pianist to play it for them and they would decide if, for sixpence, they wanted to buy it. After an hour or so at Woolworths, They might go to a musical comedy at the old opera house. 
Though at a shilling a ticket, this was quite an expense. When this finished, at 5.30, they'd all rush home to get ready to go back out to the Empire, where dancing, for two and a half pence, started at 6.30. When they came out, they might head down to Market Street and just all walk around for a few hours, before going to the Hippodrome on Hale Street, which cost four pence. That, she said, took care of your week's pocket money, and if you wanted to go out again on Sunday night, you'd have to borrow money for a ticket, another four pence. It was cheaper to go to Norsemill Park on Sunday afternoon to listen to the band. Three pence if you wanted a deck chair, but free to just wander around. And while some women were doing all they could to make ends meet and bring up their children, there were those who still found time to agitate for change. Women who braved hostile crowds to campaign for the vote. Women who risked losing their jobs by joining trade unions. Women who fought for safer maternity and child welfare. Coventry's first women councillors were elected just after the First World War. Councillor Ellen Hughes saw things from a working-class woman's perspective. She wanted council houses to be built with the needs of families in mind. To deal with the incessant chasing away of dirt, she wanted hot water heating and baths in the new houses. Kitchens needed dressers and built-in cupboards, even though her male colleagues thought them an unnecessary expense. There must, she said, be space for children to play safely, away from the roads. And Councillor Hughes wanted to see estates provided with centres where children over the age of two could play, looked after by trained nurses. Councillor Alice Arnold, first elected in 1919, became the city's first woman mayor in 1937. Her evident pride in her work and in women's achievements show how far women had come and emphasise their part in shaping the city. In 1945, at the 600th anniversary of the granting of Coventry's charter, she said that, I can say on behalf of the women of Coventry that they desire to serve their city to the utmost of their power, side by side with the men. The great interest which the women of today take in city affairs, shown not only by their seeking membership of public bodies, but in many other ways, is very appropriate in a city which has owed so much to women. I expect that if some of the women of the past, whom I have mentioned, were today able to be present in this hall, which many of them knew so well, they would be surprised to see a woman alderman on this platform taking part in a meeting of the city council. But I think they would approve it. And there it is, right there. A city which has owed so much to women. And as for Coventry, so it is for the rest of the country. It's why I wrote A History of Women's Lives in Coventry. I did so for today's women, but it also reminds us that we need to place women's contributions centre stage in order to fully understand the impact that change has had on daily life for us all. Women will continue to be involved in all aspects of Coventry's life, as well as the nation's, and it is my absolute privilege to be among them. Cathy Hunt's new book, A History of Women's Lives in Coventry, is published by Pen and Sword Books in print and as an e-book. It is available from the publisher as well as Amazon and other stores. Mm-hmm.